if you have listened to this podcast before, you've heard of Avail, you've heard of Fuji, you've heard of Space Tango and Make Time, all these companies doing really cool stuff in Lexington. Well, all of those and a bunch of others got help from the government through something called the Jobs Fund. We talked to Wes Holbrook, who's running that fund. Great conversation. Let's go. programming note for today we got these fancy new mics down in lexington if you follow us on instagram you've seen some pictures they look really cool well we recorded this episode with them and we had the wrong input so this is a raw episode coming from a mac laptop microphone great content wes spoke amazingly uh it's just going to be a little quiet and a little bit distant but um it's a great conversation you won't want to miss it let's do it Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. Nate Antetomaso here in Chicago, Illinois. As always, joined by my friend Evan Knowles in Lexington, Kentucky, wearing an L.A. hat uh, right now. So in case you didn't know, Evan used to live in L.A. He's never mentioned it before. So here he is with the hat. Yep. It's one of my favorite hats. I've got two of them. i got a black one and a blue one. <laughs> Had to get some kind of souvenir while I was there. You wear an L.A. hat just as much as Chance the Rapper wears a Chicago White Sox hat, and you live there for like three months. A little longer than that, but I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't long enough to say I was, I probably don't have the right to be wearing this, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> You're good. Uh, that one, uh, do you ever watch a Queer Eye on Netflix? No. There's a, I, um, I, I don't want to say character, he's a real person, there's a, you know, cast member on there named Karamo who's like lived in LA for a couple of years and all he does is wear hats and literally every single episode he has a Dodgers hat I went so. to one Dodgers game and I got a couple hats and <laughs> you got two at one game <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you you're back now as everyone knows in Lexington uh and we have another Lexington centric episode today so Evan do you want to introduce our guest and then we can just kind of go from there yeah so we're here with Wesley Holbrook and um, really going to be an exciting episode because we've always wanted to kind of get the city involved with the podcast. You know, mm-hmm. we really had a great focus on startups and entrepreneurs and founders of these startups, but, you know, a huge part of the ecosystem is obviously the government here that plays a huge supporting role and obviously sets a lot of the policies and um, financial opportunities for these startups to come here and really succeed. So we want to kind of, um, you know, set the stage for what they do and explain what they do. So, Founders and anybody hoping to start a company here knows who to talk to. So, Wes, thanks for joining. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So, Wes and I met, um, we got connected through uh, Tim Guthrie, who we've, we've had on here, who's one of the, uh, he's a managing partner over at Space 110, the co-working space. We got coffee, and we just kind of chatted it up, and, you know, I wanted to learn more about what he did. Obviously, we talk about a lot of the startups they work with and a lot of the mm-hmm. different aspects of the city of Lexington, so... You know, about time we get somebody, um, you know, specific to uh, Lexington you know, government here that works with these startups to kind of explain what they do. It's always been a goal uh, of ours to have that. So we're looking forward to this episode. Now, let's, before we get into any details about what specifically you do for startups in town, let's just talk about your background. So start wherever you want. Uh, talk about where you're raised, uh, your education background, and we'll work our way to what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. I, um... 
I'm from Lexington originally. I grew up uh, almost entirely on the uh, in the Gardenside area, um, so around Evergreen Deer Drive, Harrisburg Road area. Um, went to Fayette County Public Schools, and after that went to UK. Um, thought I wanted to be a doctor. I took organic chemistry, and that turned out to be a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> I think my so, sister's in the same boat right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty brutal. So I got That's the weed-out course. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it certainly weeded me out. Um, <laughs> so then I got my degree in history um, and did a lot of, took a lot of classwork in the humanities, um, philosophy, um, took Russian with my foreign language, uh, mm-hmm. while I was in arts and sciences at UK. Um, I did a program called the Gaines Center for the Humanities, uh, which was, which gave me the opportunity to do a thesis on a, topic of, um, of interest, and I wrote about festival culture in Eastern Kentucky. Um, festival culture? What kind of festival? Um, so the, what we looked at was festivals as sites of memory, um, and so memory is this completely separate thing from history. History is de- derived from memory and its interpretation of memory, mm-hmm. um, and so festivals being uh, an effort to sort of recapture this previous time of uh, at least that's what that's what some of the literature was showing that people were trying to recapture an earlier time, a more wholesome time. Um, so it was pretty it was pretty neat opportunity. Um, and while I was doing that, I also um, so getting from there to uh, sort of where I am now, I met a, a guy named John Cerdiano, uh who had worked in real estate and private equity, um, had done. Uh, had done some work with the Gain Center where I was uh, where I was doing this fellowship, and I got an internship with him over summer and did some work on real estate and downtown Lexington. Uh, so really got a lot more engaged in things that were maybe a little less academic in nature. Yeah. So you left Lexington for a little while and went to Chicago mm-hmm. for a brief teaching career, right? Yes, I did Teach for America in Chicago. Okay. Where were you and, teaching up um, here? Uh, I taught in the North Lawndale area my first year at a, um, at a pretty, so that, I don't know how much you all know about Teach for America, but the, the main goal is to place college, graduating seniors uh, into um, high poverty and at-risk schools. Um, mm-hmm. And so I worked in an area in North Lawndale, which is on the west side of Chicago, um, and had a pretty rough time of it. Um, Growing up in an area that is, while not you know, super affluent, was not impoverished by any stretch of the imagination, yeah. going and working in a, in a high-poverty school in Chicago was, was a really challenging, uh, yeah. challenging experience. Um, and I think at 23, I really wasn't prepared to, to take on some of that. So that was, the first year was, was a big challenge. Um, second year, uh, so was, that was Chicago Public Schools. After that year, there was a huge layoff of, um, of teachers from Chicago Public Schools, mm-hmm. mostly in the non-tenured, uh, non-tenured ranks. And uh, so the second year, I worked at a charter school in Gary, Indiana, um, called oh, wow. 21st Century Charter School. Mm-hmm. And um, I know there's a lot of, you know, on both sides of, of the issue, there are a lot of strong feelings about charter schools. But from my experience, just between the two, it was, it was a very... Uh, very well structured charter school, um, had a lot of support from the community, um, and so it was actually, for me anyway, it was a better experience than working at a 
public school in Chicago. Yeah. Um, that's not to say there aren't good public schools and there aren't bad charter schools, but that's just how it shook out for me. Yeah. And so while you were, you know, a part of these um, schools, one of the big things that you did was analyze a lot of metrics around uh, mastery and certain skills. Talk about that, because I thought that was an interesting thing that I noticed when I was doing research. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that Teach for America really drove into us was data-driven data decision-making. And so that's something that, um, as far as all of our lessons, we really tried to make sure that it was geared towards where, where a student was specifically. And if they hadn't achieved mastery in a certain level, then making sure you didn't elevate them to something that required them to know that skill innately um, or inherently and then utilize it a different way. So we were always making sure that we were diversifying what we were teaching and, um, and providing students with, with education based on where they were versus where the curriculum said we should be for that part of the year. Because otherwise you just get people that are more and more behind if you're trying to teach them something that they're not very good at. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you really have to deal with a lot of foundations in order to in order to get to a point where students are going to be able to perform at the level that they should be and to push them beyond that level. Yeah, that makes I think that makes a ton of sense. We talk a lot about different education models here on the podcast, so that's super interesting. Um, but you were so you were up here in Chicago or surrounding the Chicago area for two mm -hmm. years and then moved back to Lexington. Yes, uh, both years I taught middle school, and so after mm -hmm. two years of that. It, it takes a very special person to teach yeah. middle school yeah. <laughs> for a long period of time, and I am not that person. Um, and so I re after two years, I retired from teaching mm -hmm. and um, was looking at where to, um, at where to, where to go, where to live. Um, during the second year, I'd started studying for the, for the LSAT to potentially go to law school, and a friend sent me, there were some e-cards that were on Facebook, or maybe still are. I don't think so. They're like goofy black and white pictures. And he sent me one that had two guys with like on the ski slopes or something. And it had the it had the quote, you know, if you go to law school, you'll have to be a lawyer. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> uh, and so I, I just trashed that idea. Um, and my wife is from here. We were engaged. And she told me that in no uncertain terms would she be moving to Chicago. So yeah, uh, it really just made more sense to move back here and... Um, start married life off on a happy foot mm -hmm. rather than take her to, to what can sometimes be the frozen tundra. Oh, yeah. So you had a long-distance engagement? We did, yeah. Uh, we dated through college and mm -hmm. got engaged uh, about a semester after I moved up there. Nice. Interesting. Yeah, it's, but, uh, uh, it is a tundra up here, though. You're right. Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, we had one winter where we got – I'm, I'm going to exaggerate it because, you know, tales get taller with the telling, but – so something like 48 inches of snow in 24 hours. I mean, it was just something obscene. <laughs> um, and the city shut down. Um, uh, Lakeshore was was closed. Most of the streets downtown were closed. People's cars were stranded. Um, and so that was truly my only experience with how, how horrible a winter in Chicago could be. Um, but a lot of the neighborhoods are really walkable. There are a lot of commercial opportunities that are really close to to residential areas, and so uh, it, places were open, and we got to go out and have coffee and have yeah. dinner and just enjoy Chicago for what it was during those brief, brief days. And so when you got back to Lexington, what was the first thing you did? Uh, I worked as a field organizer on the governor's race in 2011. Got it. 
Uh, it was Ryan Uh That was when Steve Bashir was running for re-election. Okay. Um, so that lasted for July to, to Election Day. Um, and it's being a field organizer is a lot of uh, a lot of phone calls, a lot of door knocking. Um, I had to go hang barn signs on barns, which is <laughs> not very easy to do, especially when the person you're with uh, doesn't want to climb up there with you. Um, and these are those signs that are like four feet by eight feet. I mean, they're absolutely gigantic. Yeah. So hanging up there like eight feet high with a hammer and some nails, hold, trying to hold onto the barn, trying to hold onto the sign, um, it's not <laughs> not easy to do. Yeah, I've, uh, I've gone door to door for a campaign. My uncle down in Frankfurt uh, ran for magistrate, I think, or something like that. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience to walk yeah. around to people's front door and basically cold pitch them on somebody they might not know. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, I, I got to meet a lot of really great people. Um, and, but that's, that's one of those things that doing that, when you go in early, you stay late, you're, you're basically cold pitching people four months. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes not cold because they do know who the candidates are in general. Uh, but it was, it, it was a challenging, not because the, the work was difficult, but just because it was, it was a lot of work. Yeah. So, how was the transition from education into you know, the politics and the government side of things? Was it, was it easy because of that you know, education background? You know, it's more of a large institution, a large organization, or was it difficult for you? Um, it was a little difficult. So going into uh, going into work on a campaign wasn't necessarily challenging in and of itself because the work, I mean, the work is just, it's one of those things you, on a campaign, you show up more hard yeah. and you're probably going to be successful. Um, even if your candidate's not, you're, you're going to be able to accomplish what you set out to accomplish. Um, the first job I had after, um, after that, I went and worked for the Council on Post-Secondary Education in Frankfurt. And um, that was, it was a good experience. I worked with some good people. Uh, but that was, uh, I, moving from, you know, just four months prior, I, I had a, a classroom where I, led a lot of students to growth and had some accomplishments, uh, even if it was only one year's worth, and then going into a, a very hierarchical sort of bureaucratic institution, uh, that was a big challenge for me. Uh, but it's one of, that can be, you know, you can either sort of fall into, you know, just into the hierarchy and sort of get lost in it, or you can view it as a challenge, which is what I did, and it was something that I looked at it and said, you know, this is not where I want to be right now or even in a few years. So, you know, what's sort of a plan to get out of that? Yeah. Yeah. So you worked um, you worked there at the Council on Post-Secondary Education and then moved into the, let me get this right, the Lexington Fayette Urban County Government. That's right, yes. There you go, LFUCG. We, uh, LFUCG. Kind of just give a little bit of background of, you know, what your, your role was and what your day-to-day was like when you started, how that's changed over time, then we'll get into all the programs that you currently work with on a day-to-day okay. basis. Yeah, so I, um, like, like I was saying, I, I was in a, a council of post-secondary education, I worked with some great people, but I was in a position that um, wasn't really where I wanted to be, and so I, uh, I started, I was in policy school at the Martin School for Public Policy, mm-hmm. and I just started working my network, and figuring out you know, who has what position, do they have a degree that's similar to the one I'm getting or have, um, 
who do they know that I can talk to? And I met with a lady who said, well, I can, I can introduce you to my son's soccer coach. And so she introduced me to her son's soccer coach, who was, uh, his name was Scott Shapiro. He was a senior advisor with the Navy yep. and a chief innovation officer. Um, and so I went and met with him and had a you know, brief conversation, learned a little bit about what they were doing. They learned a little bit about me. Mm-hmm. Um, first, they said, you know, are you interested in an internship? I'm like, I'm married. I got a mortgage. I can't. No, I can't quit my full-time job and go work at an internship, uh, as great as this would be. Um, and then I went back one other time and met with them. And then the third time I went in, uh, Mayor Gray came and sat down. And um, I hadn't been offered anything. And he sat down and asked me, when do you start? And I was like, what? It doesn't, <laughs> you know, these are, these are the sorts of things you sort of hear about but don't actually get to experience, right? So, mm-hmm. um and then Scott comes back and he's like, oh, well, you know, we haven't talked to him about all that yet. <laughs> you know, we'll get to all that. Um, so I started working there in uh, July of 2013. And at first I was just doing um, data research, um, looking at some policies that uh, the other communities were doing. There's a big push for affordable housing, uh, affordable mm-hmm. housing trust fund in Lexington at the time. Uh, so I got to do a little bit of work on that, mostly supporting Scott and one of the other senior advisors, some of the other senior staff. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, a couple things happened. Um, one person left, and so I became the mayor's main staffer for public events, for legislative events. Um, and also, he was very interested in putting together an economic development initiative. Um, and... He was asking, does it, you know, what does this look like? Does anybody know how to do this? I was like, well, I do. And not really actually knowing, you know, anything mm-hmm. at the time. Um, just one of those things you volunteer for and step into. And learn about it afterwards. Learn about it afterwards, yeah. Um, and so figured figured out what some, uh, what some best practices were, what other communities were doing, and worked with senior staff to help sort of create something out of whole cloth that made sense for Lexington. Um, at the same time, we were trying to get funding for something, and so I got to work with the legislative group at the at the city, the Urban County Council, and talk to them about you know what we were trying to accomplish, what their concerns were, um, how do we make sure we're taking care of taxpayer money, and also supporting the uh, the business ecosystem in Lexington. Yeah, <clears throat> and over your time, I know when we got coffee, eventually you and Jim Gray got pretty close, and yeah, you learned a lot from him. So. Mm-hmm. Describe kind of what you learned over time and what made him a really special person because he's done a lot of amazing things. Yeah, he really has. So um, kind of talk about that. I know when I when I left Lexington in 2009, I was, and I think a lot of people during that time, at least a lot of my friends were, were like this, and maybe people still are. This was not a place that we really felt that there was anything for us to come back to. Um, and I, you know, in two years, um, not much had really changed other than there was a, a more of a feeling of momentum that things were, were going to be happening. Um, and so it made the transition back for me a little bit easy. Uh, working with him very closely, uh, you know, him being CEO of a, of a large construction company for a long time, um, just trying to absorb as much of the lessons from what they experienced down at Great Construction, um, learning about what his vision was for Lexington, uh, learning about 
setting high expectations for for the work that we were doing uh, and what that means, how to surround yourself with people who, uh, who are going to help you execute on that, and also making sure that you have high expectations about the people you work with. Um, those were those were some of the things that that I picked up over time, um, and and also how to really enjoy um, how to enjoy what can be a stressful job, uh, working in the political side of government, the appointing side, appointed side of government, can be stressful at times because there's a lot of tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch trying to accomplish something. You need at least eight votes on the council to pass, um, and so. Dodging and ducking and weaving and trying to trying to accomplish some of those things, um, and if people are not coming along, you know, figuring out what their concerns are and maybe helping them understand how this is best for their constituents in the city uh, long term. Yeah, uh, he. One other thing I will say, he he really, not to disparage anybody who came before him, but uh, at least from you know, turning. Turning 22, whenever uh, right before he was elected mayor, um, he really had a long-term vision for what Lexington could be. That I think is would have been hard to see at the time, um, and so he was really help. He was really able to help lead people along to that, um, to where some of the things that he accomplished. It's kind of hard to imagine that you wouldn't have those things in place right now. Yeah, um, you know the historic courthouse being one of them. Um, Lexington Convention Center, renovation, um, Town Branch Commons, um, all in sort of various stages of completion of work, but those were those were projects that he was very passionate about and pushed for very, very strongly um, that are that are gonna get done and change the face of Lexington uh, for the future. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to those. And as somebody who's lived downtown, you know, for the past three, you know, almost three years, I, I love the city of Lexington. I like yeah. you know, I I came back when I really you know, didn't have to. I could have stayed out in California, but I loved I loved Lexington a lot, um, and I, I can see what the vision that you know he had yeah. based on what everybody's telling me and what I've learned, and it's really really exciting. And that gets to my next question, which is, not at its, in its current state though, what really sets Lexington apart from so many other cities? You know, it's probably a, a tough question because there's so much and there's so many things that go into it. But from your standpoint, what really makes Lexington a great place? One of the things that, that I've heard um, from people just sort of in the ecosystem um, is there's there's this feeling that Lexington is at the beginning of sort of a great wave of opportunity. Um, and so how do we make sure that we catch that wave? I think some of the large capital projects is one piece of it. Um, how do we make sure we put all that together? Uh, one, one person had said, years ago that Lexington is what Austin, Texas was 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine growing to something like that. Um, but I think that the opportunities there to do our version of what that is, um, and there's a lot of a lot of opportunity for people, um, not just in government, but at the startup level, you know, in, in commercial business and restaurants and retail to do something pretty outstanding mm-hmm. uh, but just with a different spin on it yeah I've always looked like that as like a startup yeah so yeah right. I think so there's a there's a lot of people with a lot of creativity and totally. um, you know how do we capture that and bottle it up and, and create
commercialize it in a way that's going to make it successful. It's going to help grow the city. I like the comparison to Austin in a sense of like the the explosion of growth that is happening. But what I think that a lot of people don't appreciate about Lexington, and I didn't even in my time there, is you know the unique culture. The as much as we say in this podcast, Lexington is more than bourbon and horses. Like mm-hmm. that is a cool culture: bourbon, horses, basketball, all of that. And I think taking that ingrained kind of old culture of Lexington and learning how to weave that into this new explosion can make it even more unique than in Austin or, you know, whatever the other up and coming small startup town is. And that's something personally that I'm super excited about. Yeah, definitely. So we had mentioned that, you know, I, I said Lexington reminds me of a startup and I look at it that way because of the opportunity and the excitement that in my mind that brings. What specifically does your team do in the startup space? Um, so I, after, um, Kind of goes through a little bit of my background. I worked in the mayor's office until 2016, and then a position opened in our finance department, and so I moved into that position that I'm in right now. And we we do a couple things. Some of them with startups, some of them with capital development, construction. Uh, one of the main ones we work up with is the jobs fund, and that's one of the first assignments I had with um, with the mayor's office was coming up with this economic development incentive program. And so we've worked with about 25 companies now, and we have companies, and they've, they've been of all stages. We've had people that have been uh, incorporated for six months. We've had people that have been in business for 20 years who are spinning out a new company, and they'll come and talk to our team about what are some of the things that, uh, how can we be supportive of what their growth is. And for us, it. It's going to, it may sound like it's a little short-sighted, but, but really what we're looking at is growing the job, uh, job ecosystem in Lexington. And so in order to do that, we need to make sure that there's money coming back in to be able to fund programs like this and be supportive. So our goal is to grow the number of jobs and the level of wages. And so for companies to apply, they have to, uh, they have to, be creating at least one new job and at a wage above the median average salary uh, in Lexington. Um, and we, like I said, we worked with about 25 companies, had some uh, had some really great successes, had some that were lessons learned, um, but then we tried to adapt and sort of recreate the program over time to make sure that we, we learn from those and we're always being mindful of taxpayer money and what that, uh, what that looks like, you know. Before we get into like those wins and losses and the learnings, I just want to say I don't, I don't think it's necessarily short-sighted to look at jobs because, you know, I, I think I've been at two companies now that have been a part of the jobs fund, Fuji and then yep. Vail, right? Yeah. So both of them you know, took advantage of that. And for me, I, I don't think it's short-sighted because when you create a job, especially in the tech space, the amount a person learns at a startup and in those situations is so much that whether they stay at that company or not, whether they're laid off or not, whether they decide to go somewhere else, it's like a compounding effect for the city. Yeah. So, for instance, at Fuji, you know, we, we used the job fund and hired a lot of people and raised money, and we had all these great employees, and we had them long enough that they came in there and learned so much. Now, whether they stayed there or not, and unfortunately, many of them weren't able to stay, they went on and started other companies in town, right? So right. it's like a compounding effect that over time just continues to build on itself. So... That's one major learning that you know I've looked at the jobs fund and thought of that 
you know, I think that's a good way to look at it is to create jobs, especially in these new businesses, because they just go on to start other businesses. Right. right. And and that's that's one of the long term goals is how do we support how do we support this space in Lexington, which um, you know is not as well developed as it is even you know ninety miles down the road. Yeah. If you look to Cincinnati or Louisville or Nashville, if you go to Nashville, if you go somewhere like Chicago, especially if you go to some of the larger markets on the coast, their 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 infrastructure for the startup community and entrepreneurship is just a lot more mature than it is here. But that yeah. um, that's something that we've had some conversations with our board members about, and part of it is, at least from one one person's perspective, was you know this is we may be a little bit more discerning and do a lot more due diligence here than you see in other places where there is a lot more capital. Yeah. Because you just have to be a little more intentional about how you deploy the capital. Yeah, it forces you to be more intentional, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, short term, we're trying to make sure we have the funds, we have money coming back into the program. We're growing the city's revenue overall to make sure that we can continue to reinvest in that space. Yeah, what, what are some of the most common ways you grow the city's revenue? I mean, taxes, I'm sure, is a big one, but are there yeah. other ways that I might not be thinking of? Um, I mean, that's that's one of the main ones. Is yeah. We are, our primary revenue source for the city is... Um, or maybe payroll. maybe the type of taxes, maybe the yeah. other way to put it. Yeah, so payroll withholdings uh, and net profits on businesses, That's that makes up the majority of our revenue sources for the city. Um, you know. Not quite, but not short, not far short of two hundred fifty million dollars of a three hundred and seventy million dollar budget. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we don't grow with the number of jobs, people working, if we don't grow the wages of people in the in the area, um, then we've got to depend on our next largest sources, which is insurance premium taxes. You know, you got to depend on people to buy more insurance and franchise fees, which is um, in addition to your electric, gas, and water bill. Um, and people are always trying to find ways to cut down on their usage of electricity and gas and water. So um, those top two are really probably the only way, not, not the only way, but they're the two main ways that we grow the pot uh, to be able to reinvest in the city. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about a second ago that we're at really the, the early stages of growing a great startup ecosystem in Lexington. And, you know, I've said on the last podcast and so many podcasts that over time, the more guests I talk to, the more I realize, you know, it kind of changed my perspective from, you know, I think a lot of people get frustrated with the with the scene here because they don't really take a really step back. And I was that way. You know, at Fuji, there was a lot of reasons to be frustrated with the space. And you know, over time, you know, you can get that point of view. But as I've been interviewing people and talking to just more people, I've gained this new perspective and kind of taken a step back and realized how early we are in the stages mm -hmm. of building this. And it's going to take, you know, losses. It's going to take some small wins to eventually get to a point where it's you know really really rolling. And get to a point where we're close to Cincinnati or local. Right. Right. And so people just gotta have that standpoint. It took me a while to get it. We've had guests on here that have been frustrated. We've had some guests on here that have had that long point of view. Um, so it's just been really, you know, nice. Kind of We've been both at different times too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I said, it takes some losses for everybody to learn and um, you know, move forward. And what are some of the losses that you guys have had and learned from, you know, over this period of time that this fund has been here? Yeah, we, um, you know, fortunately we haven't had that many, um, and we've been able to mitigate a lot of those just because of how we structure our contracts and looking at um, looking at places like the state who have been involved in this incentive space for a lot longer. Um, 
but we're and we're, we're very upfront with people, uh, especially now, because uh, we're having pre meetings with people talking about, you know, making sure they understand what they're applying for. Um, that if you enter into a deal with us, there are clawback provisions. If you don't meet your um, your job requirements, your wage requirements, there are personal guarantees. Um, these these are things that are not easy for some people to swallow, <laughs> but we're also dealing with taxpayer money, and so we need to be really judicious in, in how we use that. Uh, and it, that's not to say we're overly punitive. We we hold people to the numbers that they tell us they're going to hit. So when somebody comes to us for an incentive project, they'll say, I want to create um, five new jobs at a wage of $30 an hour. We're like, okay, well, what's your long-term plan? They say, well, 35 jobs is really the top end of what I think I can hit. We're like, well, maybe you should look at, well, maybe we should incentivize three or four. Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, $30 an hour is, you know, that's what we're shooting for, but we really think it'll be more like this. We're like, well, maybe you should, yeah. maybe you should take that back a little bit, like 27 and 50. And so whenever people, whenever we go to the board and the board says, yay, move forward, um, then we, those are the numbers we use, and so we're not we're not trying to force people into something that they don't think that they can do. Other time, you know, and that, that's a that's a lesson we learned early was we had a company that came in. They said, oh, "I want to create all these jobs," and we said, "You know, that's a that's a <laughs> the number they were mentioning was very high." Um, and we said, "You know, are you sure you don't want to cut that in half? Maybe three quarters?" They said, "Nope, going to do it." And then we start to do some of our compliance, and it turns out they fall short. Yeah. Um, and that's that's not a very pleasant conversation to have, um, but because we're dealing with taxpayer money and we have these contractual provisions, we use them, and so we've been able to recapture some of that money um, without being overly punitive. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have to be you know have a lot of due diligence because first of all, entrepreneurs are just naturally overly optimistic a lot of, ambitious. Lot of, a lot of things, right? Yeah, very ambitious, ambitious right? So yeah. you just kind of have to dial them back, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, you know, personal guarantees, it's, it's hard for people to swallow, but that's one of the things that that we've utilized to great effect. And um, it's, it's really interesting from my perspective, you know, working with people on these contracts, um, there you really see sort of two groups. We have 60, we have board, the board approved, we have six, we have this window of 60 days to execute a contract because we're governments, so, you know, we want things to be, have a process. But we also, that's another lesson learned. We had some people who the board approved. We tried to negotiate this contract, and it kept going and going and going and going. And so we finally had to put a cap on it um, that made sense. And so you'll have people that, you know, want to talk and recommend language changes for for the contract. And then you have people that look at it, and then you get a signed copy later that day. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, and, and both in the startup space. So it's just... It's a matter of personality and uh, how comfortable they are with the numbers and, and the concept and what the plan is. How about yeah. friends? Um, you know, I think from our perspective, a lot of them have been wins. We've, uh, we were working with um, we were working with Drua very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever he first came to us, I think they had less than 10 employees uh, over at make time. So we worked with them very early. Um, working with Randall, uh, whenever they were looking at spinning out a veil, uh, is one. Uh, one thing I noticed about you know, both of them, 
veterans. Yeah, right. So that they're, you know, they've been through a lot. They've had a lot of life experiences, and so it doesn't really surprise me. You know, they take a different approach to they take a more probably temperate approach, right? Yeah. So it's probably a contributor to them being wins. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we've also worked with, you know, that sort of gets to some of the diversity of the program. Um, we had one of the longest board discussions we had was um, one of the companies we incentivized was Pepper Distillery. And mm-hmm. the, the di- discussion at the board level was, was this, is this the route we want to go? Like, do we want to open up the, the window of opportunity for somebody in this space to be able to come and get incentives? Um, so that's been a success story. It helped them accelerate and get to, um, get to where they wanted to go much more quickly. Um, we had, uh, in the same board meeting, and we always tr- we always try to be flexible as long as you're not restaurants or retail. You know, it's sort of sort of open season as long as you're um, for an application as long as you're uh, creating jobs at, at the wage level. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll certainly consider it and take it to the board. Um, we had Space Tango, which shoots satellites and experiments into space, and Hydra, which produces high-end luxury bath products in the same meeting. Um, so it was really just. It really shows sort of the breadth of what we deal with on uh, on a monthly basis to have two very different companies uh, come through, but two companies that are that are very successful and are doing really exciting things in Lexington. Which, um, you know, if, if you would have told me when I was in college that this was going to be uh, this was going to be you know sort of mission control for experiments that are happening on a space station, I'd tell you you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then this sort of goes to some of the creativity that's happening here. Um, and then Hydra, you know, they're, they're producing luxury bath products that are getting shipped all over the world in a, in a, in a facility that's not far from Midland. Uh, it's really close to downtown. So uh, moving here from, from the West Coast, I think, yeah. he, I hope I'm not misremembering him telling me that, you know, when they moved to Lexington, they became cash flow positive. Who knows? This is Hydra, oh. moving from the West Coast, from the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, it does, and it goes to show you how you know how much afford, how much more affordable things are in this market versus some of the places where it may be the startup market is more mature. Um, there's there's something to be said for value, um, value for what you're trying to do. Yeah. For sure. Do you have any you know kind of overarching future goals for the fund, and where you hope it is in the next? three to five years? I think overall we want to continue to help help the startup community grow, um, just sort of nurture that. Our, our pitch to, you know, people come and they pitch to us, not, not pitching in the traditional sense, but tell us about what their their uh, proposal is to grow jobs and, mm-hmm. and develop their company. Um, and we try and maintain a lot of flexibility. Uh, you know, we don't want to get in a situation where your contract with the city is what's keeping you from accomplishing what your goals are. And so we've, I've had conversations with companies where I've said, you know, if you're coming in and you're telling me you need to hire five developers, uh, but when you get in there, you figure out what you really need is three developers and a marketing person and a salesperson, as long as you are creating five jobs at the wages you told me, I don't care what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't care what they are because 
our commitment to you is we're going to support these five jobs at this wage level. So we want to provide opportunities for businesses to be flexible and meet their goals. Yeah. I like that. Uh, yeah. And I think being in a smaller market for capital investment and a less mature market without as much infrastructure, I think that flexibility helps in developing that, that ecosystem for yeah. startups. Yeah. Yeah. So we always like to end on, you know, a forward-looking statement on the city. I think that was a great, you know, way to describe where you want the jobs fund to go. But in a more broad sense, where do you hope the city is in, you know, five, ten years? Because, you know, I feel like you guys got really a great finger on the pulse from a lot of different perspectives, from initiatives to major projects like you know, these construction projects going on. Yeah, I feel like you guys have kind of an inside look into this oracle of what we could become. So talk about, you know, where you see us being. Yeah, I think one of the things that, um, just to, to go with that opportunity, I think there are still a lot of people who come through Lexington to go to UK, um, visit and see it, and may not look at this as a place that they want to stay long term. Um, but there are still a lot of people who are, who are coming here and going and working in Boston or you know, I went to Chicago. New York, the West Coast, and now they want to come back because it, it feels like home. And so yeah. trying to make sure we maintain that, uh, that sense of community, um, which that's, that's one of the opportunities is how do you not, how do you make sure you I think that's, it's going to be a challenge, but that's something.